know that to sing praise to you and to bless you from our souls and to mean all of the words in full sincerity that we sing uh, is right. It's the only reasonable. It's the only intelligent. It's the only uh, logical response to you and your glory and all that you've done. But we also know that though that may be true, it's also only possible because of the work of the Holy Spirit within us who takes what we would be blind to and dead to and makes it alive, makes us seeing, makes us feeling, and have a sincere desire to worship you. And so we pray together that we, as we look at your word, would be stoked in that desire, that it would be stirred up within us to worship you and to see new ways to meditate on uh, your glories uh, that would provoke from us this worship. And we pray that in that too, you'd prepare our hearts to remember you in the table. So to that end, we ask your mercy and your grace to us. In the name of Jesus, amen. Open up your Bibles to Psalm 104. Psalm 104. And we are coming to the end of our look of this great psalm. And it's really appropriate that we would come to the end uh, in preparation for the Lord's Supper and for the Lord's table. And it's appropriate because the psalm is a celebration of the Lord's glory in creation and not merely of his display of power and so forth, but it's a celebration of the Lord's involvement in his creation, his intimate relationship to his creation. He stands above it in transcendence and separate from it, but he stands near to it and to us because of his imminence, those glorious terms that speak of all that God is for us. And it's appropriate because God created all things to delight in them and for us to share in that delight. And as much as this is true now in measure, it will be known in the future uh, to a measure and to a degree that we can only fathom at this point. And so while we celebrate in God's goodness and creation, we anticipate a new creation, a new heavens, and a new earth. Because that is what has been bought for us through the redemption that provided in Jesus Christ, the incarnate Son, through whom all things were made, for whom all things were made, and by whom all things were reconciled back to the Father. Colossians 1. And so with this, we finish the last two of the four reasons to praise that the psalmist gives us in Psalm 104. The first was because God has made his glory visible through what he has made and how he rules over everything that he has made. And number two is because of his intimate care for creation. And then we'll look this morning at his ownership of creation and our delight in his delight in creation. So let's begin by reading the psalm once more, and then we'll consider these last two points. So read with me if you will. Follow along. Psalm 104. Bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light as with a cloak, stretching out heaven like a tent curtain, 
He lays the beams of his upper chambers in the waters. He makes the clouds his chariots. He walks upon the wings of the wind. He makes the winds his messengers, flaming fire his ministers. He established the earth upon its foundations so that it will not totter forever and ever. You covered it with the deep as with a garment. The waters were standing above the mountains. At your rebuke, they fled. At the sound of your thunder, they hurried away. The mountains rose, the valleys sank down to the place which you established for them. You set a boundary that they may not pass over so that they will not return to cover the earth. He sends forth springs in the valleys and they flow between the mountains. They give drink to every beast of the field. The wild donkeys quench their thirst. Besides them, the birds of the heavens dwell and they lift up their voices among the branches. He waters the mountains from his upper chambers. The earth is satisfied with the fruit of his works. He causes the grass to grow for the cattle and vegetation for the labor of man so that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine which makes man's heart glad so that he may make his face glisten with oil and food which sustains man's heart. The trees of the Lord drink their fill. The cedars of Lebanon which he planted where the birds build their nests and the stork whose home is in the fir trees. The high mountains are for the wild goats, and the cliff are a refuge for the Shephanim. He made the moon for the seasons. The sun knows its place, the place of its setting. And you appoint darkness, and it becomes light, in which all the beasts of the forests prowl about. The young lions roar after their prey and seek their food from God. And when the sun rises, they withdraw and lie down in their dens. And man goes forth to his work. And to his labor until evening. O Lord, how many are your works. In wisdom you have made them all. The earth is full of your possessions. There is the sea, great and broad, in which are swarms without number, animals, both small and great. There are the ships move along, and Leviathan, which you have formed to sport in it. They all wait for you to give them their food in due season. You give to them and they gather it up. You open your hand and they are satisfied with good. You hide your face, they are dismayed. You take away their spirit, they expire and return to the dust. You send forth your spirit, they are created and you renew the face of the ground. Let the glory of the Lord endure forever. Let the Lord be glad in his works. He looks at the earth and it trembles. He touches the mountains and they smoke. I will sing to the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praise to my God while I have my being. Let my meditation be pleasing to him. And as for me, I shall be glad in the Lord. Let sinners be consumed from the earth and let the wicked be no more. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Praise the Lord. Incredible celebration and the words of poetry of God's display of his glory and his power in creation. Of his intimate involvement with all that he has made. And the wonder that we gaze upon wherever our eyes meet anything that they observe. There is, again, as I've always said, that great statement by Calvin that we cannot put our eyes anywhere and not see some spark of the glory of God. 
Look back at verse 24. And again, this is the psalmist uh, provoking in us reasons to give praise to God. Things that we should notice about what God has done that should stir up within our affections the desire to give him praise. And this third reason here is that praise for God for his ownership of all things. His ownership of all things. And I guess there's, there's a few ways, of course, you can break down this psalm. But what's striking here in, in this last section, but what's striking here is this final statement of verse 24. The earth is full of your possessions. That is, in fact, what's being celebrated throughout uh, the psalm. The Lord has brought all things into existence. He sustains all the things that he made. All things belong to him. Note here in these verses how this ownership works itself out. It works itself out in delight. It reflects his own delight and the delight that we have. Verse 25, he mentions again the sea. Water plays a significant role here in the language of the psalmist. In verse 25, there is the sea, great and broad. Remember, it's the sea that the Lord created. It's the sea that the the Lord, where the Lord placed the waters as he gathered them into one place and he set a boundary around it with the shores. Here, the sea is this place where man goes about on ships back and forth doing their business and where Leviathan or these sea monsters are, uh, play and sport and have and frolic, really. It's really a, a beautiful imagery. It's the sea as a playground for all the creatures there great and small, and for man to observe as he travels on it, on it. And there's a similarity here with what he has just said, and that he has a certain rhythmic cycle. There's a certain cycle, a certain rhythm to creation. There's day and there's night. At night, there's these dangerous beasts that come out. He mentions the lions, and they go out and prowl around for their food, and they get it from the hand of the Lord. And then when the day comes and the sun rises, then man comes out to do his labor and to do his work. And we noted as Calvin made that great statement, it's almost as if the, the Lord made it safe now for man to come out, afraid from that threat of these prowling beasts that would do him harm. And, and they do their labor, and there's this certain rhythm that there is to creation, that we share the same land where there's flourishing with those things that could actually cause us harm. And so there's that same idea here as man goes about on the sea, and he travels about to, for his commerce, for his travel, for a variety of reasons. And yet there are the Leviathan that are there that could be a great threat to man. But instead, he pictures them as playing, as frolicking in this great big body of water that the Lord has made. There's a certain kind of delight, a sense of wonder. A, we'd see that. You can go, if you go on some trips, you can pay money and they'll take you out on a boat to do what? see dolphins, you know, in the water, or to see the great whales. You can go to Alaska. We love to watch nature shows where they have these observation boats that go. That's the idea here, is there's a wonderland of, of glorious things that God has made that, that delight us, and they incite in us a kind of wonder, and we should take pleasure in them. One is noted, related to man traveling and the dangers that lurk there. If they were unrestrained, he said, on the sea with its dangers, the ships go freely about while the sea monster simply plays in it. Man going about his work, the great whales, the great fish, playing 
in what God has given to them. Now, when we observe all of these things, it's as if we have the pleasure of spectators. And in fact, that's what we are. We are spectators to the spectacle of God's glory in the many ways that he displays that. It's almost as if we go into somebody else's garden. And that's one of the pictures here throughout the psalm. It's almost as if we go into some wealthy person's garden that they have filled with all kinds of beauty and delight and designed gardens and exotic animals and different things for us to to walk through and observe and to take pleasure in. All of creation is like that from God's own hand. And I would make a note here, an interesting thing. It's implicit uh, really in all of this and in our own experience, and it's this. It is this reminder that God made these things for his own pleasure. We're going to come back to that at the end. But we see that even here. God is doing all of this for his own pleasure. The idea is that God is delighting in all of these things. God has done these things because it is for him something good and something to take pleasure in. But here's something interesting too. It's emphasized, or the reality that God himself takes delight in his creation and he takes delight in it for himself, even apart from us, is the fact that there's so much of creation that we don't even know about. You know, with, with the advent of technology, we're able to go to different depths of the sea and to film what's down there. And we discover these glorious things, these amazing kind of fish and life that takes place far beyond our view. When we see that, we should know that God is taking pleasure in that whether we discovered it or not. And it was there for millennia before we discovered it. When we look out into outer space, there's worlds that we're only beginning to have an inkling of an idea of their distance and their makeup and so forth. And yet God calls them all by name. He knows them and he takes delight in them. There's things that we'll never know about of this creation. And yet God is pleased with all of them. He's pleased for his own glory and his own delight. And then he makes us to participate in that and to share in all that is glorious and all of the Lord and all of the world's uh, wonders. And there's so many things that God knows about that we have no idea about. And he's pleased with all of them. But notice as well what he says here is that this ownership also by God's own design places on him a sense of responsibility. A sense of responsibility to, clear, to, to care for everything that he has made. Look at verse 27. They all wait for you to give them their food in due season. All of creation waits for God. And the, and the picture here is that all are, are anticipating when God will bring about their next provision. When God will bring about the, the next meal that they'll receive from his hand. Everything depends on him for sustenance and for life. So God here takes on the role of sole provider. And there's really a reflection here, isn't there, of what God or what Jesus commanded us to pray in the Lord's Prayer. Can you think of which part I'm talking about? Give us this day our daily bread. God, you are our provider. You are our provider moment by moment. You are our provider and our trust at every point that you who remember care for creation of the one who cares for us here as God cares for his creatures so we look for him to him for our care as well he no less provides what we need notice not everything we want but certainly everything that we need and yet above all we as creatures do stand out still 
Because while everybody waits for God, while in that sense we're very similar to the lions and to everything else. We, we wait for what God provides for us. But then we have this unique sense as well. Because in waiting for God's provision, we can also trust Him. We can give a rational response to His word and to His promises. We can consciously and by decision and intention rest on His character when in, in His giving us these uh, provisions but the point here is is god's is god's possessions of all of creation as his possession he takes responsibility to care for them he's the ultimate provider the ultimate sustainer but in doing so he's given us a role to play he's given us a role to play he's given us a responsibility as well because while he is the owner we serve as stewards of his creation and so if we think of what is our role, if God is the one who's provided all these things, God is the one who's taken upon himself to be the, the one who sustains everything that he has made, what is the use of man? Well, he has in his own, by his own purposes, made us stewards. What is a steward? The idea of stewardship is this. It's the idea of managing what belongs to another. That's just a simple way to think of it. If we're a steward, then we have care over something that belongs to another. And the quality of our care reflects a lot of things, but it reflects our view of the one who owns what we care for as well. And so we have a stewardship. All things belong to God. He doesn't in any way need us ultimately to care for his creation. Psalm 24.1, the earth is the Lord and everything that it contains. He gives these words and just listen to them. Putting this into perspective in Psalm chapter in Psalm 50, uh, verses 10 through 12, he says this. Now, the context of Psalm 50 is he's, he's rebuking this idea that there's something meritorious, really, in these sacrifices that his people bring. And he's saying, look, I don't need those. What he's really wanting is the heart of worship. That's, that's the idea. And so in making his case, the Lord says this in Psalm 50, uh, verse 10. He says, for every beast of the forest is mine. In other words, I don't need you to bring me things to my temple. You don't add anything to me. There's nothing particularly pleasurable in that. It's for you. It's not for me. That's the idea. Verse 10. For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. Verse 11. I know every bird of the mountain and everything that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world is mine and all it contains. In other words, the lesson is that God is essentially saying, you dwell on my earth. You dwell on my land. This is my air that you breathe. These are my animals that you're bringing. This is my wealth that you contribute to me. You don't own it. I own it. That's the idea. You live on it. And in living on it, I've given you a task to care for it. And to be a steward. And so it's the idea of, of stewardship. So all things depend on God's provision. He does not need us, but he has created us to participate in his work of caring for creation. And this care, this stewardship, is to be motivated by man's good and God's glory. And let me just put this idea in your mind as well. Uh, I'm just going to cover this briefly, but... When we think of stewardship, there is a focus here of creation, 
But God's, our stewardship of what belongs ultimately to God uh, includes everything. It includes our own life. It includes our time. It includes our relationship. It includes our possessions. It includes everything. God owns everything. Get this, God owns you, and in a unique way, God owns you if you're a believer because you've been bought with a price, to use the language of the Apostle Paul. And so everything in our life is actually a stewardship that we'll give an account for to God. But I want to mention this because even as we think about this psalm and, and that idea of God's ownership and God's care for everything, we as Christians can tend to err on, a, on one side or the other. On one side, we can err by saying, well, you know, God is the one who is responsible for everything. He's going to do what he's going to do. So therefore, we really have no responsibility for creation. So we can, we can use creation in a way that really turns into a kind of abuse, a kind of corrupting of that attitude of care and nurturing. And so sometimes you can hear it said, well, God's going to destroy it anyway, so we really don't need to care about, you know, environment or any of these other things. But that's not a biblical idea. God cares for his creation. God made it in a way to flourish, and we should care about that. We should care about things like pollution, and we should be care about things that can make this world a better place and reflect our care. So one side is just to say we have no responsibility at all, and that's kind of the extreme. And then another side is to think as if the very existence of humanity depends on everything that we do. And if we don't do it, then this creation is just going to, you know, it's going to go to pot, it's going to self-destruct, and that's all going to be at the hands of man. But that's not a biblical perspective either. Because God's going to destroy the world by his own doing, yes, but it's not going to be because of the irresponsibility of man. It's going to be because of man's sin. It is the corrupting influence of man in general that will bring about the judgment of God. So the reality of stewardship is really in the middle of that somewhere. And the component is here of being made in God's image and realizing that we are to rule over creation with care, cultivating it and bringing from it the fullness of God's provision. And yet we are to do this in a way that images God that images God and his own responsible care for everything that he has made. And that is a helpful thing for us to remember. In other words, our stewardship of all that God has made is to reflect love for God and love for our neighbor. That would be the mandate to humanity. We care for creation responsibly because that's what images God. That's we're stewards of it. And we're to do so in a way that isn't selfish, but in a way that it provides for the maximum provision and the flourishing of mankind. Now, the fact that that doesn't happen and that we have starvation and that we have disease without proper resources to treat those disease, coronavirus and those things in places where it affects, the, f the, the fact that that exists and somebody could say, why does God let that happen? And the issue is God isn't letting that happen. You're letting that happen. Humanity, the sinfulness of man, God has provided a world even after the fall that has plenty it's the sinfulness of man that brings about the wants and the need. But here is the idea, the main point here is that whatever we do, however, we recognize that God is the ultimate provider. There's, there's no way that we could provide for creation of our own. There's simply too much. We don't even know of the goats that are up in the cliffs and of the fish that are in the sea. God does. And so he says here then that God provides. But let's notice something else. Look at what he says in verse 28. 
You give to them, they gather it up. You open your hand, they are satisfied with good. You hide your face, and they are dismayed. This ownership means then that God is ultimately the ruler of what he's made, and he gives and he takes away according to his own sovereign purposes. That means he brings hunger and he brings abundance. The overall picture is of his provision, but it also includes his withholding at times of provision. And again, we, this, the, the focus here is on creation, but we don't want to limit what's being revealed about the character of God merely to creation. As a matter of fact, can you think of similar words? Job, God took his wealth. God took his family. Unfortunately, he left his wife. And he brought all of this hardship onto Job. And what was Job's words? The Lord gives. The Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. The Lord gave me those things. The Lord can take those things away. He has not violated some personal right or entitlement to blessing. He has not done that. The fact that those things were had in the first place were a matter of his grace and his mercy. So the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. When the Lord takes away, he is not treating you unfairly. And that's part of what should be inspired by this, this kind of language. He gives because he can choose to do that. He withholds because he can choose to do that for his own wise purposes. And he uses important language here. Look at verse 29. You hide your face and they are dismayed. You hide your face and they are dismayed. The face has the idea of presence to bless. Here it has the idea of his presence to bless with provision for his creatures. But again, I want you to see the connection here. It is a larger a larger principle of God's dealing with what he has made. The phrase is used as well in Psalm 37, out of David's mouth. He says, O Lord, by your favor you have made my mountain to stand strong. You hid your face and I was dismayed. Again, he owns it. He rules it according to his own wisdom. He gives life. He brings death. Look at verse, uh, the second part of uh, verse 29. You take away their spirit... And they expire and return to dust. Verse 30, you send forth your spirit, they are created, and you renew the face of the ground. Now there is here, that I'll just mention, a picture of this triune work of God. Just remember that every time God acts, he acts as a trinity. Every time God acts, he acts as father and son and spirit. And that's always implicit in any act of God. Sometimes explicit, sometimes implicit. Always it's there. Here it is, his spirit. So it is the Father who ordained these things. It is the Father who provides. It is that this provision comes through the Son. All things were created by him, through the Son, by the Father, through the Son. And then it's the Spirit who is the one who executes that will of God, the will of the Father and of the Son. And here it is, the Spirit and his role and ministry of giving and taking away life. This is the same spirit who moved and hovered over the face of the water, who gave shape and to the world. And the spirit is ultimately the source of all physical life of all creatures. And again, this is through the Son and by the will of the Father. But it is the spirit 
of man, it is said in Genesis 2-7 that he formed him out of the dust of the ground. And then what happened? He breathed into him the breath of life and man became a living being. He breathed into him the breath of life. And so he did with man, so he did with all creatures. Job 33-4, Elihu says this, The Spirit of God has made me, and the breath of the Almighty gives me life. Here he says, Of all creatures you send forth your spirit, and they are created. So understand this, it is the sustaining work of the Spirit of God on which all creation, and particularly all animate, animate creation, depends on life. You take away your spirit, and they expire. Let me read to you out of Job 34. You can I'm just read it. Or you just mark it down if you want the reference. Job 34, verses 14 through 15. Listen to this. This is Elihu talking again. Now, they said a lot of true things, Job's friends. Now, their particular counsel was terrible. That was not good. But... They did actually say true things uh, along the way. Their application of it was lacking. And so here he says, Elihu, truthfully, speaking of God, if he should determine to do so, if he should, verse 14, should gather to himself his spirit and his breath, all flesh would perish together and man would return to dust. Now consider that. As we think about the sustaining, he upholds all things by the word of his power. All things exist in him and through him. And he sustains all things in Colossians 1. So as we think about that, that means that at every moment that you have breath, and that any living creature has breath, it is because God is in that moment continuing his work of upholding and sustaining everything that he has made. If he were to stop that work at any moment, that means collectively in a moment, in an instant, all of humanity, everybody in this room and on the planet would just descend into dust from which we came. So as we look around and we can see every living thing, we see in that the activity of God to uphold what he has made. He were to stop that work, then all things would die. They would be no more. And so God is God over life as well as death, but death is never the last word. You know, as an example of this, Spurgeon gave two examples I, I thought were helpful that were um, worth repeating. Maybe an example of this working out, of him, him taking away life and then him renewing life by this work of the Spirit. The first example was the flood. No sooner did he destroy everything living on the face of the earth and the ground. But of course, that's accepting those who ate the fish and such in the sea. But everything that lived on the face of the ground, there were some sea creatures destroyed too. No sooner did he do that than after the flood subsided and Job and the rest of his family again repopulated an earth that was designed for flourishing and provided an abundance for all of mankind, which we to this day are still enjoying. He gave the example as well, secondly, of the seasons. He says this, In winter, the earth falls into a sleep, which makes her appear worn and old. You get that for about seven months out of the year here. 
But how readily does the Lord awaken her with the voice of spring and make her put on anew the beauty of her youth. It's a beautiful picture of this, what he's talking about here, the psalmist, that we see this cycle over and over. I want to make two observations here and then move on fairly quickly. We're not going to have a part four. Uh, So observe two key lessons. Here's two key lessons. First, although the focus here is on the life-giving principle of all living beings, there is a reflection here of the consistency of God's work both in the physical realm and in the spiritual realm. In John 6, 63, Jesus said to his disciples and to the crowds, it is the spirit who gives life, the flesh profits nothing. The spirit, as the wind blows, that spirit of life, as it was breathed into man to give him life on creation, so it is breathed into man by the spirit of God to give him spiritual life, to awaken him out of his death and to open his eyes again to the reality of God and to be able to see and interact and to feel and to live before with eyes opened and ears dug out and a heart awakened to the glory of God. As he sustains and as he gives physical life, so he does with spiritual life. And he does that through the word. Even as he brought all things into being by the word, through the affected power of the Holy Spirit, so he does that with spiritual life, by the word of God. You were brought forth by the word of truth. He does it, he sustains us by that word. He keeps us by that word. He upholds us by that word. In a sense, even as he does all of creation. And his word will not return to him void. Secondly, God's ownership of all things marks this. God's sovereign right and ruler over all things. God rules over his creation with all rights. And to do so as he sees fit. And that's really an important point, isn't it? God never violates our rights as if we have rights independent from who he is. We do this sometimes in our fallenness in humanity by wanting to put God on the stand as if he somehow has to explain his ways to us. Right? People do that? As if somehow God's ways have to make sense to us. As if somehow God has to justify himself to us who depend on him every moment for life and existence. Who understand nothing in light of the whole matrix of the glories and complexities and wonders of creation. He has all rights. That particularly is a rub for us when it comes to salvation. I won't turn there, but Romans 9. Does not the potter have the right over the clay? To make one lump for one use and another lump for another use? That's really, really comes down to the rubber of the road. Does God have the right to decide who he will rescue from their sin and who he will lead? And, of course, that applies to everything. But I want to note here, and this is the important point, this is not a means of fear or dismay for those who know him. And for at least two reasons. First is this. The regenerate heart... N- inherently knows this is right and good. He just knows it. And why does the heart know that? Because of the second reason. 
The regenerate heart knows that his sovereignty is governed always by goodness, wisdom, and holiness. And so while things remain a mystery to us that we will never be able to understand this side of heaven, we go, but I know who God is. And I can rest in him. I can rest in him in my struggle. I can rest in him in my confusion because he is good. And testimonies of his goodness are all around me. And so why God's sovereign rule over his creation is most often a mystery and perplexing to us, the mystery is rightly met with trust and rest and a regenerate heart. And we can know what is meant. In Psalm 46, be still and know that I am God. Now let's note this last part. Um, in verses 31 through 35. And this is praise to God by delighting in his, uh, his delight in creation. So the, so the third point was delighting in the fact that God owns everything, which means he has responsible for everything, which means he created it for us to delight in, which means that we can trust him as he rules over his possessions, which he has all rights to do. And then thirdly, in verses 31 through 35, we delight in God's own delight. And this really gets to the heart of the whole Thing. Verse 31, let the glory of the Lord endure forever. Let the Lord be glad in his works. Again, this is incredible. And note the central focus of the psalmist here. Notice just in the verse. Let the glory of the Lord endure forever and let the Lord be glad in his works. So the Lord's glory and the Lord's gladness in all he made is connected. It's of a piece. It's a unit. What the Lord is glorified by also brings pleasure to the Lord, and he is glad in. I mentioned this at the beginning. Some have a problem with this statement. God delights in his own glory. For his glory is the highest and greatest display of wisdom, power, goodness, beauty, and holiness. We delight in an object that's worthy of being delighted in. What would be more worthy than God himself? How could God delight in order for God not to delight in his own glory as the greatest end of all things would to say that there is something that's greater than God himself worthy to be delighted in? Right? But that's not the case. It's right that God would work all things for his glory. It's right that God would glorify or delight in those things that bring glory to him. That's right and that's good. It's not unlike our response to him. As you're well familiar in the shorter catechism, what is the chief end of man? To glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And those things go together. This is a proper and a properly God-centered understanding of and response to all of creation and all of who God is. The believer delights in God's own delight for his glory and his pleasure in all that he has made. So that's a wonderful truth. Again, to be offended by that is to miss two fundamental points. One is that God is infinitely worthy and the only ultimately worthy object of praise. That's one. Number two, we praise what we delight in. And here's where we get to a really wonderful, this takes us somewhere deeper. The second is this, we praise what we delight in. God created us to find our greatest delight in him, and there's no possible delight greater than himself. And so there's no possible greater delight than delighting in him. Let me put this in another way. 
there was a quote, I don't know, I sent it to Mike, I don't know if it got up there. Okay, eventually we're going to get this all lined up here. So I'm just going to read it to you, it'd be helpful if you could read it there. And this is, not surprisingly, a quote by uh, C.S. Lewis. Uh, he has a little book called Reflecting on the Psalms, and, and this is uh, from Lewis. But he says this, and he captures something very important. You can listen. He says, I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses, and here's the key idea, it completes the enjoyment. Praise completes the enjoyment. It is, in his words, it's appointed consummation. It is not out of compliment that lovers keep telling one another how beautiful they are. The delight is in, isn't complete until it is expressed. He goes on to say, the worthier the object, the more intense this delight would be. If, we, if it were possible for a created soul, I mean up to the full measure of conceivable in an infinite being, to appreciate, and that is to love and to delight in, the worthiest object of all, and simultaneously at every moment to give this delight perfect expression, then that soul would be in supreme beatitude. Let me maybe simplify that if, if I need to. It is to say this, that the worthiness of an object provokes and out of us delight. And the delight that it provokes actually in us is not completed in its experience until it's expressed. It's not merely enough to use his example to be in love and to say, I love that person, until you tell them, until you express that, it's not completed. It's not done. It's not merely enough to see something that excites wonder in your own heart. The very nature of that wonder has implicit in it the desire to share it, to spread it, to proclaim it, to declare it. And he's saying, and if we could at some moment have unobstructed view of the most worthy object that there is, God, and to find in God our greatest delight and have at every moment the greatest possible expression of that delight to God, that would be the highest state of bliss that could be conceivable. That's the idea. And that's what the regenerate heart made alive to God truly desires above all else. To be lost in the overflowing joy of the unhindered sight of his glory and the fullness of joy of being in his presence and having at every moment the ex spontaneous expression of praise that flows out of that fullness of joy that, that glimpses his beauty and grandeur. We get an infinitesimally small taste of that here, but in heaven it's that forever, unhindered, unhindered. Let the glory of the Lord endure forever. Let him be glad in all of his works. And the fact that it's in the very psalm, and he'll say this in next, verse 33, I will sing to the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praise to my God while I have my being. In seeing his glory, I have no other response but to praise him. And in my praise to him, I find my greatest joy and my satisfaction. Just to read the last part of a quote. We, I won't read the other second quote I had, but this, again from Lewis. Fully to enjoy is to glorify. In commanding us to glorify him, God is inviting us to enjoy him. Now, interestingly, he goes from that in verse 32, and he says, this sort of magnificent wonder of the beauty of creation in our 
delighting in it. And then he says in verse 32, he looks to the earth and it trembles. He touches the mountains and they smoke. And the idea here is simply this, that every display of God's presence, of his power, of course there's imagery here maybe of Mount Sinai when the Lord visited and there was smoke and there was lightning and so forth. The giving of the law. The idea is that every display of God's presence, of his power, is a source of praise even when it produces trembling because it always points back to his glory and to his majesty. And here's, as the believer delights in God's delight in all he has made, it produces deep desire for him to delight in us. Look at what he says next, down at verse 34. Let my meditation be pleasing to him. And as for me, I shall be glad in the Lord. It's possible that the meditation here being referred to is the psalm itself. It's possible. In either case, the point is that the Lord would be pleased with what is offered. And you see that repeatedly, and we'll look at other psalms that have that. At the end of it, Psalm 19 praises God for general revelation, special revelation. Let my meditation be pleasing in his sight. Psalm 139, search me and know me. The result always of this kind of experience of the Lord is that we would participate in this experience of the wonder of who he is by being righteous and that all around us would be reflective of that righteousness. And that's what he goes to in verse 35. So what does that lead him to? Let sinners be consumed from the earth and let the wicked be no more. How do we get there? Because the response is not merely that he himself would be marked by righteousness, but the desire of this heart is that righteousness would one day fill the earth and that all in his creation that bears now the marks of the fall and that stands in rebellion to him would be removed so that God could delight completely and totally in everything that he has made without any mark of rebellion or dishonor to him. It is this, this sense of the righteousness and the glory of God that makes the regenerate heart say, I can't wait until everything brings glory to you, and then I see all that doesn't bring glory to you, and I want it to be removed. Because I don't want anything to hinder your glory. That's the idea. In fact, this reflects all of Scripture. Even Jesus himself, even Jesus himself, makes a similar statement in Luke 12. I hope I get this reference right. Yeah, Luke 12, verse 49. He says, I have come to cast fire upon the earth, and how I wish it were already kindled. But I have a baptism to undergo, and how distressed I am until it is accomplished. Indeed, the full account of this forms, this kind of desire to cleanse the earth from all that stands in rebellion to God, forms the greater part of the last book of the Bible of Revelation. Revelation is, in a sense, the account of the fulfillment of this desire of the psalmist and all of the righteous. The wicked that now reside on the earth will be removed. Let the sinners be consumed from the earth. It chronicles the coming judgment upon unrepentant mankind and the fulfillment of this desire of the psalmist. Obviously, we could read Revelation, well, the whole book. Listen to just a few. 
This is right before the account of the return of the Lord, the marriage supper of the Lamb. He says, after these things, I heard something like a great loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, hallelujah. Notice, praise is what accompanies the righteous in light of God's judgment of the wicked. Not because there is a hard-heartedness, there is the desire for the salvation of those who don't know the Lord. That's another part of this. But there is a greater desire, a greater desire even than that, that God would be glorified. And so they can say, hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God because his judgments are true and righteous. For he has judged the great harlot who was corrupting the earth with her immorality, and he has avenged the blood of his bondservants on her. And a second time they said, hallelujah, her smoke rises up forever and ever and ever. The 24 elders fell down around the throne. They worshiped him saying, amen, hallelujah. Interesting, that's the Hebrew word that's in the last part of this psalm, hallelujah. And a voice came from the throne, give praise to our God, all you his slaves, you who fear him, both small and great. And then I heard something like the voice of a great multitude and like the sound of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder saying, hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the almighty reigns. That's the heart of the righteous. We long for this day where Christ reigns over everything that is his which is everything. I want that, don't you? I wait for that day. However, the main thrust of the psalmist here is not the suffering of the wicked, but their removal so that the glory of God and his pleasure in all that he has made would be finally realized. And when is this realized? Well, he wouldn't know all of this as much as we do anyway, and we don't know everything, obviously. But it's finally ultimately realized what? In the new creation. The new heavens and the new earth. The last chapter of the book, as it goes on, is the recreation of creation, essentially. A physical world of beauty and delight only anticipated in the first heavens and earth. It is a world of beauty and delights that are not merely greater, a greater display of God's power and wisdom in his works, but here is the glory and the wonder of the new creation, which this points us to. It is the unspeakable wonder of God's presence and glory intimately present with us unhindered. What are the words of Revelation 21.3? Behold, the tabernacle, the dwelling place, the presence of God is among men. And he will dwell among them and they shall be his people and God himself will be among him. The glory, the presence, the gladness and righteousness all come together to meet forever. That's ultimately the expression in the, whole, in the whole panorama of biblical revelation that's being expressed here. Is I want this time when heaven and earth will be one, where there will be no more sin, there will be no more unrighteousness outside of me or within me, where the praise that I desire to give now in broken sputters of a stumbling child will be in the full maturity of an adult, in the fullness of my being, and it will be unhindered forever and ever. And the created glory will no longer be only just a reflection of his majesty, but it will be something that we fully enjoy in the full light of his presence. 
Indeed, it won't be the sun anymore that provides a rhythm or cycle to life. It will be the glory of the Lord unending with no need of a sun always shining on us and always our glory and delight and praise. And then in the truest sense, we will say, bless the Lord, O my soul. And this is what we're looking for. Second Peter says, but according to his promise, we are looking for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. We don't have time to read Romans 8, which would be significant, but let me end at least with this light as we come, this uh, line from a, a hymn we love before we come to the Lord's table. This is one of my favorite hymns, I'm sure it is to you, but it fits so well to the psalmist praise here. He says, it says this, this is my, this is my father's world, oh let me ne'er forget that though the wrong seems oft so strong, God is the ruler yet. This is my father's world. The battle is not done. Jesus who died shall be satisfied and earth and heaven be one. And that's what we long for. And as we come to the table, why I said this is a perfect introduction, that's what the table reminds us of. That day is coming. We who know him have been reconciled. In him, all things have been reconciled. And the table is the Lord who is at the right hand right now, reminder to say, remember, I'm coming. All things will be set right. So let's pray, and then we'll prepare our hearts for the Lord's table. Father, thank you for these promises, precious and magnificent. Give us an understanding of them. Help us to not be delighted by superficial things of this world, but to find delight in those things that truly are worthy of our delight and our praise. How often we are distracted by small things, and we miss the truly glorious things, which are all centered in Christ and your work. How often we're enamored by those sort of artificial pleasures and miss the pleasures all around us in the song of a bird and the fill of the sunshine and the sound of the wind and the community of friends. And ultimately in the sight and the meditation and the glory of God. Help us to find our solace there, our happiness there, ultimate, which then allows us to go out and better enjoy all of the things that you have given for our delight and your glory. And help us now as we, oh Lord, remember you, remember your word, remember your promise from the table. Would you strengthen us by faith? Would you help us to come to you rightly and may every heart here, I would pray, would be right with you. And we ask this in the name of Jesus, your name. So the men will pass out the elements.